Hey folks, Mark Scroggins. Welcome back to another edition of the Reclamation Transformation. And today we have someone who is very near and dear to my heart personally, as well as professionally, uh, Stephen Tosha. How are you? I'm good. Good. Well, thank you for joining us. I appreciate that. I want to make sure that everybody understands a little bit. So I've known uh, Stephen, actually met him through my partner, John Withers. And Stephen and I hit it off uh uh, I think right away and then pretty we do, quickly. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, you know, we're able to create that relationship and then also we've taken it personally. So Stephen, someone that I trust and manages, you know, firm money and personal money and stuff like that. So, uh, obviously this is somebody that I trust immensely. Just so, a little bit of pressure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So don't worry about performing. It's all good. It's all good. So why don't you introduce yourself and explain a little bit what you do now and then i want to talk about what your journey is because that is a hell of a story sure so i'm a managing director at at excuse me merrill lynch i also said morgan stanley which is where i came from but i <laughs> i've been in the business about 12 years and prior to that i actually worked for verizon for 29 years uh, actually worked in uh, corporate investing uh, before I went into private wealth management. And currently I have a pretty big practice, one of the largest practices in DFW with Merrill. And I'm also a portfolio manager, which means I not only invest money for my clients, but I have other financial advisors that use me as their money manager for their clients. That is a truly unique position to be in, isn't it? I love what I do every I, day. I bet you do. I bet you do. So it's always nice to see somebody that retires and then it's like, I'm bored. Now I need to come out and do something, <laughs> something else. And uh, I feel lucky that I, I got you involved to help, to help me uh, get past my naivete on, yeah. on certain things. Well, one of the things we were talking about before we got started is I always wanted to do this, even when I was a kid. So really, um, yeah. So I actually used to look at look at the newspaper and pick out stocks when I was eight or nine years of age. Oh my God. And I would save my money. And my brother was, my brother's 12 years older than me. And I would take him to the Merrill Lynch office and I would tell him what to go tell the stockbroker I wanted to buy. And he would come out and he said, the stockbroker said, no, that's not a good buy. And I said, well, you tell him the PE ratio is this, the target price is this, and the, the sharp ratio is this, and tell him just to execute the order. <laughs> and I was eight years old. Oh my God. So I got to ask, how did the investments turn out? They turned out pretty good because they paid for college. <laughs> Holy crap. Uh, so, okay, well, it's a good thing that I don't have an eight-year-old or else my <laughs> expectations were going to be, were going to be really high. So, so one of the things, and we talked about this a little bit uh, before we started on the podcast, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is, is your journey and how you got from your childhood and the mm -hmm. things that you went through which are the subject of a book, by, by the way, I would mention that anybody should read this and it's Color Me Pretty. I colored her pretty. I colored her pretty. I'm sorry, I That's messed okay. up titles, but um, you know, you autographed one for Linda and she loved it and I've read it. And I mean, it is just, it's amazing where you are today. And um, that's one of the reasons that I wanted to, wanted to have you here because of the journey that you went through and one of the things that I see in my practice a lot is people that are at a beginning point in needing to undergo this journey of understanding who they are and why they are mm -hmm. the way they are and what 
they need to figure out as far as this journey goes. And that has been, as you know, um, part of my story too, has, although mine has been in the area of recovery. Um, but you know, that personal journey is, is kind of long and painful at times. And, um, so that it means so much to have someone that has had to go through a, a life's journey. So what I'd really like to do is talk about, let's start off talking a little bit about the book. Sure. And how did it come about that you decided to go ahead and write the book? You know, I didn't realize I was ever going to write a book about it, uh -huh. um, but I wrote my mom's eulogy. And when I finished the eulogy, um, we were we were driving home in the car and my husband turned to me in the car and he said, you colored her pretty. And my mom basically, uh, I always had a struggle with my relationship with my mom because right. of um, betraying us children. But yet I always stuck by my mother and obviously we'll get into the story of what happened. Right. But there was this huge struggle of loving my mother and yet resenting that what she what she put us kids through and she didn't protect us. But I took care of my mom right up until the day she died. I bought her a home. I made sure that when the first time I bought her, she reversed mortgaged. Uh, so I got, I got pretty smart. The second home I bought her, I left in my name so right. she couldn't reverse mortgage it. Um, but the bottom line is, um, you know, and when, when she was yeah, her end of life, I put her in a very nice facility that was very expensive. It was $13,000 a month. That was six years ago right. um, to make sure she was well taken care of. So I always did take care of my mother, even though there was this, I loved my mother, but there was this piece of me that really couldn't understand how a mother could betray her children the way she did. Yeah. Well, let's, we've talked around it. Sure. Let's talk to it because the journey of what actually happened and to see you sitting here, I mean, I think that would be, it is amazing to me on a personal level. Um, so let's talk about your journey <laughs> and what, what you went through. Yeah. So my, my parents were married. Uh, they had two children and then they took a break in between and had two more children. Um, but when my parents were getting divorced, my mother was told by my oldest brother, Joe, who is actually, uh, uh, he, well, I changed the names in the book. But anyway, my oldest brother ended up telling my mother that my father had molested him. And my mother was going through a, the court battle and the custody battle. And so what my mother ended up doing is she used that against my father to gain custody. But in the custody settlement, my father still got rights to see us every weekend. And so including what, Joe. Well, the older two kids, by the time they were 13, they didn't have to go see my father. Okay. So the older two kids did not go to see my father after the divorce. But every weekend, my mother sent my brother and I into his home, knowing he was a child molester. But she never asked us if he was harming us. But yet she knew he had with the older two children. So my mother was still young. She was attractive. She was 32 at the time. And frankly, she really wanted some private time. So I think it was a conscious choice of not asking because she didn't want to know. Oh and my yes, gosh. my, yeah. And my, and my dad was molesting us kids. So my dad remarried and had two stepchildren, boys also, and he was molesting those children. So when I was 11, I ended up having a nervous breakdown 
which is obviously in the book. Yeah. And what came out of that was that I just couldn't deal with it anymore. Right. And the way at the time, the way of dealing with me was to drug me and to keep me sedated for quite a while. Um, and at some point I just said, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, I ended up emancipating myself. I ended up moving out of the house when I was 17. And when I was 18, I realized by looking around at my brothers that I needed to get therapy. And so really the story is not about empathy or sympathy. It's about how therapy helped me become who I am today. Right. Um, we grew up in Southeast LA in a predominantly black community. Um, you know, and it was very difficult uh, growing up in Southeast LA being white and gay. But I think that forever changed who I am because I can relate to all different facets of people. It, it's made me who I am. And I'm grateful for that part of my life. Right. I'm also grateful for the experience of realizing at 18, I needed therapy. So I actually sought out a therapist. Her name is Lynn Brooks. She's no longer alive. And I got into therapy to work through the family trauma. Uh, it was not easy. It was difficult. Uh, but while I was in therapy, I was in group therapy also. And I saw these men that were 40, 50, 60 years of age just entering therapy for the first time in their life. Right. And I realized this was the best thing I could do. Is, is it's to amazing do. to me that you did that. One, because of the age. Mm -hmm. But also, I mean, it just... At that time, it was not something that you had. You didn't have a lot of people doing it, period. But you didn't have a lot of men doing it right. at all. Right. Well, I think I think for me that the psychological term is called ego strength. Mm -hmm. And ego strength is from the core of where your being is. So I don't know what caused me to do it. But innately, I saw drugs and alcohol and um, I saw people in their own financial crisis and emotional crisis. And I realized my parents can control me or I can take charge and I can control my destiny. And I saw my brothers doing drugs and not, not going to school, uh, living in the street, doing crystal meth. And I saw people around my, around me with the same issues. And I thought, this is not who I want to be. And so I, the therapy is the way I didn't end up that way. That is just unbelievable to me. It's funny because I, um, I don't mean funny, funny, but, uh, ironic. Odd. ironic. <laughs> there we go. Let's call it ironic. There you go, folks. There's a great way to do things. Uh, but it's so unique because I mean, I mean, I'm 55. All right. And so I know there are a lot of people in my generation that are Gen Xers mm -hmm. that are, it's like we changed somewhat from the baby boomers uh, where, you know, my dad was a pull yourself up by the bootstraps, rub some dirt in it, get back out there, you know, that kind of thing. And I operated like that for a long time until I couldn't. And so part of, you know, I don't think I went to therapy for the first time until I was in my uh, early 30s early thirties. And, you know, I was beginning, actually, I had begun to abuse alcohol before then. Um, I was wound so tight when I was in law school, it's the way I went to sleep. I mean, and I've always battled insomnia since I was a kid and I still have bouts of insomnia, but 
uh, that's where alcohol began to grab a hold of me. And, but I went through, you know, cycles where I drink too much and then cycles where it was in check and, and then eventually it became problematic. But I remember going to therapy for the first time and that being brought up that I think you might have an issue there <laughs> to which, you maybe. know, maybe, <laughs> but, you know, my, my answer at that time was not particularly graceful and it would go along with what a lot of people, you know, think my personality can be at times because I told him to go fuck himself. I mean, that's a quote. And, um, <laughs> that is ironic <laughs> as today I sit here sober for, you know, six and a half years. So, uh, so it's funny now, you know, looking back at that and how therapy has been something that I have used in addition to, you know, some 12 step programs or, or a 12 step program that is out there that I won't name. Um, but that therapy and understanding certain things about myself uh has allowed me to create some boundaries that allow me to peacefully coexist mm -hmm. relatively peacefully coexist with others you know and uh and have some grace in in doing that and that is not something that i i did well beforehand so i'd like to know a little bit more about the spiritual journey that that went with that with the with the therapy you know i think one thing I'll talk about before I get there is, you know, I knew addiction existed right. for me, right. right? Because of what I talked about. Sure. But my addiction was food because I got up to 318 pounds. Oh my gosh. And yeah. so one of the things that happened is once I got into therapy, which I think now leads to the spiritual pieces, yep. without even dieting, really going on a diet, once I got past all the really what I call hard work, which right. took about five or six years. Right. I made a conscious decision that I was going to shed the weight and I lost 110 pounds in six months. I was down 160 pounds, uh, within a year. And so just by getting a hold of the, what I will call the mental and spiritual aspect, I began to realize the, the food addiction was something that instead of it being alcohol or drugs, right. It ended up being food. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. Um, I've lived my whole life through what I didn't know at the time was um, called creative visualization. Mm -hmm. um, Francis Scoville Shin wrote a book about uh, one of her first books in the 20s, in the 1920s, about creative visualization. And I read her one of her books. And then Lou Tice was a guy that um, formed an organization in Seattle, which was... Um, I think it was called investment in excellence and it was about investing in your own self right and so it's it, it basically was creating your own mantra about what you wanted your life to be and getting in tune internally mentally physically emotionally and spiritually with and it wasn't about a god a god it was more about universe or whatever god you so chose right to help support you through that right and I didn't realize that I had always been doing that in my life. Um, when I was a young kid, I remember walking down the streets of Compton and eight years old. And I'm like, how the fuck do I get out of here? I mean, somebody was shooting up in a gutter and I am going to, I'm going to third grade. Right. And I'm thinking, how do I get out of here? And I remember, I remember the clothes I had on. 
I remember the shoes I had on. I remember that I had money hidden in my socks because most of the time I was harassed on the way to school and beaten up to get what money I did have. Right. You know, if I got my ass kicked five days a week, that was a good week. Okay. Because it, it usually happened a couple days a, a day. I mean, it happened a couple times a day. So creative visualization for me has always been about where I wanted to go. And I remember thinking, hmm, my doctor has a degree. My dentist has a degree. My teacher has a degree. Nobody ever talked to me about education, ever. It was expected you just went to school and lucky if you got out of high school. And that very moment, I knew that I needed to get an education. And that was going to be the paradigm shift in getting out of that universe. And wow, I realized then, in order for me to get an education, I needed to pay for it. So at the age of eight years old, I began <laughs> keeping score in a bowling alley at night, starting at the six o'clock league and the nine o'clock league. I got paid $5 a night, seven days a week. And I saved that money and literally invested that money through my brother, through the stock market, so that I could put my get out of the house and put myself through college. But I think that all sort of came with this whole shift about one of my escapes would be to walk along the beach for hours at a time. And I used to look at the homes on the beach and say, one day I'm going to live there. One day I'm going to have an oceanfront property. One day I'm going to have a husband, not a wife. I'm going to have dogs and because didn't couldn't imagine ever having kids um, then. But the bottom line is I began to visualize what my life was going to be. And I think that that has been my spiritual journey is creative visualization. One of the reasons I think I've achieved what I've achieved is I keep raising the bar and mentally imprinting it and praying about it and thinking about it and visualizing it to the point where I hate to say it, but taste it, smell it, breathe it. Right. And I believe that that has been my spiritual journey because I really am not religious, but I am a very spiritual person. Right. And I believe that that is what has really helped me achieve the next level. Right. And I do that in my career now. You know, my, my business is a very competitive business. Right. But I don't compete with my cohorts at work. Right. I complete, I compete with Tosha. Right. How do I raise the bar? How do I get to the next level? Right. How do I get access to, you know, uh, that next rapper or that next sports player? Or how do I get a politician, you know, as a client? I visualize it. I start creatively figuring out how to get there. But if I put my mind to it, I'm going to at least try. Right. So, you know, it's interesting because you mentioned the food addiction and it's like, you know, what I, I used, I always refer to it as, you know, a hole in the soul. You know, and so we use something to try to fill that, you know, and, then, um, you know, and I've used food as well. And, um, uh, you know, thank God I'm a little over six one and could carry it, but I'm glad that I'm, you know, 75 or 80 pounds lighter than I used to be. Um, but it was always, you know, covering something up. And the one, one thing that I, I think we all have, and it's interesting, you know, you read, different, different books. And, you know, psychology, I think is like any other science in that it is, uh, the answer today is not necessarily what the answer is tomorrow. And, you know, what we seem to have found out is, uh, is that parents 
we're, we're so impressionable at a young age, you know, so much happens between a year and a half and five years of age that affects who we are as people, even down to mate selection and things like that, that are tied to the dominant parent in the household and all of these different things. And that even the best parents that are out there still create issues within their children where it is completely unintentional. So I can't even fathom the ones where it's like, you know, I grew up, I had a, I had a very privileged upbringing. I grew up here in Dallas for the most part, upper middle class, went to Richardson High School, you know, went to the University of Texas undergrad, was really lucky in a lot of things. But I always had something inside of me that was, I could believe the negative, 